welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 59 of The Near Memo. Uh, as you can probably hear, uh, Greg Ster- and or see, Greg Sterling is off this week and I am filling in David Mim as the guest host for today's events. Uh, we are pleased to be joined by a uh, guest panelist, Joy Hawkins from Sterling Sky and Local U. Uh, Local U Advanced happened earlier this week. Um, I was honored to, to moderate the, the conference. I thought it was really fantastic and Joy's here uh, this week to give some of her uh, top takeaways from the event. Um, and actually my item of the week is also gonna include a, a couple of takeaways from the event as well. But first, before we get into that, Mike, you wrote an epic piece yesterday, uh, well, Thursday of last week, depending on when you're listening, about uh, Google's new guidance around in-store availability and how that might impact rankings in the local pack. So why don't you take it away? Sure, a little bit of backstory. Uh, In middle of March, I did some searches and found that Google was now showing more real-time product inventory from Merchant Center directly in the pack as opposed to just in the ads. Although at the time I found that it was only around major brands like Nike or Nikon, uh, it would do that. So segue to this past week and Damien Rolison noted that the how to improve your local ranking on Google page had been updated to include a snippet on uh, that your, your business will increase visibility if you add real-time product inventory uh, through one of the many, uh, through Pointy or through uh, Shopify, and that would increase your visibility. So I went and checked and found that w- many more searches were now showing product inventory in the local pack and in, uh, searches that weren't previously showing them, like specific product searches or higher brand level searches. Uh, for example, Nikkor Lens showed previously, but Nikon Lens didn't. So Nikkor is a brand of Nikon, and now Nikon Lens shows. And then if you search on a specific lens or specific camera, previously it didn't show, and now it does. And also they were showing more in in roll. So to me, it was interesting, one, that it is rolling out further, and two, that Google would put this on the how to improve your ranking page. And then three, when they link to how to do it, they link to pointing. They don't link to general merchant center instructions which I thought was particularly bold given how much uh, talk there is about self-preferencing right now. So I'm curious from Joy's point of view, this page, how to prove your, is Google being disingenuous by saying you you get better visibility by adding in-store products? Do in-store products actually increase rank? Do they just increase, you know, or does it just increase clickability? I mean, I'm curious your opinion about it. I'm not sure I have an absolute opinion of Google's saying, and, and I'm not even sure what Google is saying is what they believe. I have no idea. So, Yeah, we haven't tested it, but I know we were doing some searches yesterday because we were reading your article and noticed like when you were searching, it was air fryer near me and I was getting, I think, Best Buy, Walmarts and some other big box store in Canada. It was interesting. Walmart's the only one that didn't have the live inventory. And the, the way that it looks for the other ones is like literally says it was updated, you know, hours ago. 
Um, I could see that that would make a difference in click-through rate. And, you know, if that's the case, then it would definitely impact ranking because anything that helps your click-through rate would help your ranking. And that's a secondary. We would also, from my point of view, include increase the relevance to the queries. If you're, if you're looking for a specific item and it's in stock that, and you also are seeing it as a justification in stock recently or in stock uh, now kind of justification over the left. So you, you think it actually could go ahead. David. I'm going to take a little higher view out, out of the weeds and say, as a consumer, as a general searcher, I think it should be a ranking factor. I want to know if I'm searching for a specific product that target or, you know, my local hardware store, whatever it is, has it in stock. Like that to me actually should mean that that business outranks other businesses which don't have it available. So I'm not saying it should be the only or the dominant ranking factor, but I do think from, just from a logic perspective, if you take the, if you put yourself in the shoes of a typical searcher, it, it makes sense to me that it should be a ranking factor. Uh, now that does not get into any of the self-preferencing stuff that, that Mike is bringing up, but um, I think... I, I don't have a problem with it being a ranking factor. I don't have a problem with Google sort of specifying it uh, on their page uh, about how to improve your rankings in, in local. But Mike, do you want to talk a little bit more about where this fits in the self-preferencing context? Uh, some of the other items that we've spoken about in previous episodes. Sure. So there's a bill in front of Congress right now pro uh, that would prohibit all of the major platforms from doing what's called self-preferencing, which would mean on a local search, Google showing the back results or showing any uh, a business profile. And in this situation, they specifically pointed to the only solution to this being their pointy, which is hosted on their service. It's a product which I think they're giving away right now, but that they bought that sits between your point of sale and their web pages. And it was just fascinating to me that rather rather than pointing to a general page about how to get products into Merchant Center that would flow into the pack, they only pointed to theirs. And I thought it was a particularly bold move, one that I called a middle finger move, because they're under so much scrutiny right now to make such a clear self-preferenced action seemed stupid to me in light of all the criticism they're under. They could have played it a whole lot more subtly and said, here are three choices. We really, you know, if you don't have a BOS, pick pointy. If you do, pick one of these other ones or whatever, you know, but they didn't. They just went right to a pointy page and there is no mention of Shopify or Woo on those pages, even though they had this solution long before pointy did, I think, or at least. Right. And uh, just to be clear, what the solution is, is an automated feed where it's it's essentially, it tries to be a one-click sort of OAuth into Google Merchant Center from your Shopify dashboard or WooCommerce dashboard. As we've spoken about in previous near memos, it's, you know, actually considerably more cumbersome than that to set up. But once you have it set up, the, your CMS uh, will update the Google Merchant Center with your real-time inventory uh, that you're that you're tracking in your in your CMS. So, um, yeah, and it the, only shows availability. It doesn't show actual inventory. I went and checked what fields it, it grabbed. It only shows whether it's available, yes or no. I was curious, though, how often it updated. Do you know how that I don't know? Holes? Yeah, yeah, that I don't know. Uh, it's you know probably for larger stores, it would be a pretty resource-intensive crawl. So um, I don't know. Maybe they maybe Shopify only pings their service on you know products that have changed uh, or something like that. But um, it's uh, it, it definitely there, it is a very robust integration um, and is is sort of bizarre that given the effort that 
on both the business development side and certainly on the technical side that Google went to to work with these partners. It's certainly bizarre that they're not mentioning them more prominently in in the uh, the integrate the how to get your your inventory in Google Merchant Center on this page. So, and I would add one more thing that in the bigger picture, this is a strategic effort by Google to compete with Amazon. Historically, Google was the leader in product search, and then Amazon took over that lead, I think, in 2018. And Google has been trying different ways to get back into this, first with voice uh, and other ways. And, and local seems to me a really good strategy to do it. Um, and yet it's also one of those strategies that brings more into the mothership and might raise further antitrust eyebrows. But I think from a competitive point of view, it's their best route to compete with Amazon. Right. So I think it's interesting on multiple levels. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's the only thing that can be better than 24 hour prime delivery is, you know, the ability to show what's in a store that you can go to and pick up immediately. So, right. Yeah. And particularly on products where you want to make sure it fits like shoes or you want to look at like a camera product, you don't really want to buy those items. Yeah. All right. Yeah, as Great. far as well, how often it gets okay. the updated. Oh, I was just going to say, I searched it today, the same search I did the other day, and it's saying updated today. So it looks like they are updating it at least daily. All right. Uh, with that, we'll move on, Joy, to um, to your segment here and was hoping just that you could give us a little bit of uh, your sense of how Local U Advanced went earlier this week and, and maybe highlight some of your favorite takeaways. Yeah, so the event was on Tuesday, and uh, I think the on-demand videos are, are up now for anybody that missed it. Um, it was good. It was, you know, I, I'm excited that to say that it was our last virtual event for a while because uh, following this one, we're going to be going back to in-person events um, starting in uh, July 28th. We're going to be in Denver, so that's really exciting because we all like seeing people. Um, but as far as the virtual event on Tuesday went, um, I can give you a few highlights from the presentation I did. Um, so I talked a lot about spam and we're coming out with a study that'll be released, I think on Tuesday or, or Monday of next week, basically just looking at 16 different verticals over the course of the last four years to see is like Google getting any better at this, you know, is, is spam still a problem? And the answer really varied a lot based on the industry. So like I highlighted a few of them. Um, like in the garage door industry, it's getting worse, not better. In the um, personal injury lawyer industry, Google has tackled most of the spam um, pretty well, shockingly. Um, so we used to see, you know, and that it, there was like some graphs and stuff showing that they had like hundreds of fake listings if you had looked like a year or two ago. And now those are pretty much down to almost nothing, um, which is great. Um, and then keyword stuffing, again, varies a lot based on the industry. Still a, a pretty big problem in some industries. Um, but overall, the consensus is that, like, if you work in local SEO, if you are in an industry that has um, a decent amount of spam, that it's definitely something that you still need to pay attention to. I, I thought we hold it. Google said only one percent of their <laughs> list. Uh, there was only one percent bad data in there. They just said this two weeks ago. You, you, you're telling me, Joy, that that that's not the case in some verticals. Well, the thing is, like you say this all the time, Mike. They're looking at a high level view and like. There's no spam in hotels. There's no spam in restaurants. Like there are certain industries where it doesn't make any sense to spam. But like if you look at garage door repair over the four years that we were collecting all these listings, I think it was 87% of them were fake. Like insane. So definitely not 1% if you're in an industry like that. 
Right. I, Joy, I thought Churches don't spam. I thought one of the most interesting takeaways from your your session was, uh, you know, if you are an agency who is offering spam reporting uh, as part of your package. And I thought another interesting takeaway was that you didn't you advise agencies not to offer it as a line item, that it's sort of only on an as needed basis. But that in some cases, if you've got a listing taken down, what Google did was actually merge it with another listing uh, that was operated by the same business with the same network. And that listing ranked better after the after the spam takedown. So yeah. it can be a bit of a double edged sword, uh, which was fascinating. So. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Google, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Curtis Boyd session also, I want to say, did like phenomenal, got so many questions, so much interaction. And like even the the survey responses we got after, like he just got stellar feedback. Um, I think what was so cool about his study, and I hope that he does publish it, um, he looked at a thousand different review takedown requests and looked at, you know, both reporting positive reviews, like fake reviews that are positive, along with fake negative reviews, and just showed some of the data, data around that. And uh not surprisingly, but like the one category of reviews that they had the hardest time getting rid of were like false experiences, you know, where somebody comes in and either exaggerates the truth or lies about their experience, like um, to try and, you know, coerce the business into getting something or they're, you know, trying to kind of use it as a weapon. Those are some of the most challenging reviews to get Google to remove. And that I would say that's true based on my experience, but thought it was interesting. Yeah, I was um, particularly impressed when he showed a couple of screenshots of his um, transparency reports that are uh, generated, essentially uh, auditing the veracity or falsity of a given business's reviews. And there was a lot of interest in the, the Q&A uh, from agencies using that uh, both in their day-to-day -day processes as well as potentially a way to, uh, to get business from... Um, SMBs where they can show, hey, your competitors are are getting these spammy reviews, and this is something that we can actually help you solve or help you know help you fight. So uh, that was that seemed to have a lot of interest from from the agencies in attendance. Yeah, his tool is quite fantastic. We used it quite a bit, and like he does a better job than Google does at detecting fake reviews. I want to say he does a better job than Yelp because I think Yelp is too aggressive. Right. So it's kind of fascinating. This like third party tool is doing better than some of these tech giants, you know. But, Which was one of my questions to him, but uh, well, yeah, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say that there are certain things in reviews that we've identified as a group years ago, probably five years ago, the pattern of repeating users, ABC, CBD, BCE, with that kind of repeating pattern over and over and over again. They, we told Google about five years ago, and they're only now talking about possibly maybe solving that problem, which is such a simple problem to solve that Curtis has solved. It's not a complicated problem. Um, so it's just, it. part of it is joy. They just don't want to. Yeah. Clear. They don't care. Like, it's just, I mean, there's care. no incentive for them to, right? So. Yep. Right. Yeah. And then the, the final session that I, I think I'll, I'll highlight was the vicinity panel. Um, we had a lot of questions and discussion around that as well. So something that I feel like is not well known is that there was a major rollback in March. So it was late March, I think around the 23rd, but we did see some changes before then. So it's not like one of those updates where it's a single day, it like kind of rolled out. But like a lot of stuff got reverted back. Like we saw, um, especially the, the keyword rich business name thing. So we saw all these businesses that had um, keyword rich business names that got 
just hammered by the vicinity update. Like we actually had a client who has a really short name, three three words, but it just so happens to include his main category. And like his leads dropped in half after the vicinity updates. It wasn't just rankings, like it really killed his business. And then we saw in March, like leads basically rebound to like what they were before. So I think that piece, a lot of people may have overlooked, like it didn't get as much attention as the initial update did, but um, I was happy about it because I thought the initial update was a little too aggressive in that nature. So bottom line on that though, is there's still some benefit, I mean, there's still some benefit regardless of which way this is tilting to creating a business name that includes what you do and where you do it. Yeah. The big thing that Colin said is the takeaway that I think like people should just keep in mind is what, what got rolled back versus what didn't we saw. There's a huge difference between like an explicit keyword where you have like personal injury lawyer, Dallas versus just personal injury lawyer. The vicinity update kind of really went after the personal injury lawyer, the implicit version Mm -hmm. and cut your radius a lot, like quite a bit that didn't come back at all. But what we did see was for um, more of the explicit terms, like that having the keywords in your name definitely is helping more than it was three weeks ago. One thing I didn't. And before even, but even before three weeks ago, I didn't, it wasn't within whatever radius it was, it was still helping within that more limited radius. Yeah. Right. So it still is a helpful thing, which is amazing to me that Google still. There was. Ranks. There was some weird filtering going on that Yan was talking about. So we, we had a theory that, um, Basically, if there was too many businesses with the same name, that Google was filtering based on that. And Yan was doing all kinds of testing on this, but that seems to have gotten rolled back as well. So whatever that was that was going on, um, which is probably a good thing because I'm like, that's dangerous. Um, it's kind of hard to know what to do if you're a business that has a similar name to a competitor. Like, so yeah. yeah. One, one thing I didn't bring up because there were, as you said, Joyce, so many questions. So I didn't want to sort of take moderator privilege and, and eat up that time. Um, but it occurs to me that the the impact being limited to implicit geo modifiers as opposed to explicit. I wonder how much of that is is Google having trained all of us that if we're actually in a city, we don't need to include the geo modifier, and Google sort of knows that we're looking for something closer. Whereas the explicit term might be done by somebody from outside the city who really does want to see the the larger landscape of businesses. Um, and I wonder. How, I mean, there's probably no way to really gate like google obviously reports you know 600 percent increase in near me terms or whatever we i don't think we've seen anything just you know hard data around how geo modifiers have evolved but i would guess that they've dropped pretty significantly over time and maybe that is part that is part of the logic behind this update yeah that'd be interesting to look at great well it was an awesome awesome day and um i'm gonna actually segue with um a couple, a takeaway from a couple of sessions, just more, nothing specific necessarily, but a sort of high level takeaway. Um, and we had, I don't think we've talked about the, the upcoming, I'm going to try to coin a term here. We'll see how well it goes. The G apocalypse, uh, that's coming with the transition from universal Google analytics to GA four, uh, in next July, July, 2023. Uh, so this is a huge shift, uh, from, what I wouldn't say was a wonderful analytics platform before in Google Universal Analytics, but to one that is virtually unusable in GA4. And there's all kind. I mean, you can 
There's a litany of issues with it beyond just the user interface, just in terms of the kinds of things it's tracking and how much it samples and all of these kinds. There's just major issues with it. I don't think I've seen a single positive review of, of GA4 versus Universal Analytics. Um, but there's so many sessions at Local U Advanced that uh, brought up Google Data Studio and piping data from an analytics package, from Search Console, from uh, from Google Business Profiles through a third-party connector into Google Data Studio. And it strikes me that, that actually your analytics replacement might actually be Google Data Studio uh, moving forward. There's so many smart agencies out there and so many smart SEOs. Amanda Jordan gave a great presentation. Uh, Noah Lerner, Andrew Shotland talked about how they're piping um, uh, data into a model to forecast how well an SEO campaign in a given topic might might perform and using that to sort of get buy-in from clients on on what to pursue. It just strikes me that Google Data Studio may be the the savior in all of this transition and that the biggest question is, is there a, is there a platform out there besides Google Analytics that is API forward that will somehow be able to import historical data from, from Google Universal. And, and I'm testing a, one of these right now, uh, which I got the hat tip uh, from John Henshaw, which is called Fathom Analytics. The interface is much, much simpler. Uh, they do seem to be very API driven. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if that's a, a potentially viable option, uh, especially for those of us who wanna get out of the sort of Google ecosystem for tinfoil hat reasons or privacy reasons or, or whatever, fill in the blank. But I was just very impressed by the the creativity and the depth of, of knowledge and experience around Google Data Studio by so many of the speakers at, at Local U. No thoughts. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I have several thoughts. I still do some consulting, mostly with lawyers, and the reports they're getting from their age, I do sort of add on consulting, sort of help them set strategic goals, help them set specific goals that they can go back to their agency with. And the reporting that they are getting from their agencies still sucks <laughs> terribly, which is amazing to me. And, and, and what I realize in dealing with these lawyers is they, they don't need much. They need to know whether their calls are going up or going down. They need to know if they're if they you know need to write a piece of content or not if their search radius is expanding or checking they don't need much but none of the reports i've seen given right they show and most of them show like in in the law field yeah. the month over month reports pretty lame because it's a very seasonal business none of them show year over year for example they're like hello i mean who cares in january what you did in december it's a different month really from a criminal lawyer point of view right um and so the problem with with Data Studio is that it still requires so much wrenching to get it to, into shape and then to make it useful. And and so it requires an agency to do that. And even the ones I've seen, some of them are good and some of them aren't. So it's, it still puts a big barrier between the small business and the numbers they need to know. Yeah, like you said, Mike, the problem is, is conversions, right? So the only reason why I even use Google Analytics is that's, that's where the conversion data lives. And I think the challenge for, for us is going to be, okay, if we like onboard, let's say a lawyer client, I really want to know year over year comparison for conversions. And like, how are you going to do that if you can't compare to two years ago? Um, that's frustrating. Like, I want to be able to know how January this year performs from January last year. And usually you can do that with Google Analytics because most most 
small businesses like lawyers would already have GA set up and some type of conversion tracking set up. So you can kind of see comparisons, but that's, that's frustrating. Like that's going to be a huge problem next year for sure. Yeah. Do you think, Joy, do you think that most of the agencies you're working with will go to GA for you? Probably, no? but like, I, I don't know. I hate it. Like I went in a few times and I'm like, I don't even know what to do in here. Like it is so just like confusing. And like some of the reports I look at in Google Analytics, I don't even know where they are. And Dana had to send me a like eight reply tweet on how to get the landing page report. I'm like, it should not take eight steps. Like this is a single report right now that you can look at to see what pages are converting the best. And like, I don't want to take eight steps to get that information. So dumb. Do you think some of this will be solved with better reporting? I mean, maybe I think the problem is, is like, I want to ditch it. But then I'm like, great, now I've got to somehow find a way to combine chats and calls and lead forms on your website into some other platform um, that will calculate it and then tell me which pages it's coming from. And it's just uh, it's a hot mess. I'm not excited about this at all. Yeah. Thank you. I was Are you muted, uh, David? trying not to um, grace everyone with my coughing uh, from this cold I've still got. But um, I was saying if there's if there are other API forward analytics packages that can pipe into something like Data Studio or pipe through another product before they get into Data Studio. I mean, to me, that that is now is the time to start investigating those options. And uh, Greg Sterling tweeted before he went on vacation. Uh, a really interesting survey about uh, how many mark, what percentage of marketers were going to just go along with the forced migration to GA4, something like 60 or 65 percent. I'm just like, what gives you any confidence? That, I thought it was an April Fool's joke. Uh, what gives you any confidence that GA4 is going to get any better than it is now? The the experience of universal analytics has consistently mm -hmm. degraded year over year over year. And if this is the starting point for GA4, just imagine how bad it's going to get in four or five years. So to me, now is the time to actively investigate other options um, and particularly options that are that are API driven that can connect to a whole bunch of different um, tracking services like, you know, a call rail or a call tracking metrics to bring in call data. Uh, maybe there's a gravity forms connector for form conversions, those sorts of things. So do we know anybody that's done this comparison of these other tools? No, I think it's a good yeah, I think it's a good good place to go. I might have to tweet John Henshaw because he's really into this stuff uh, and is very into getting people off of GA. So um, we, we shall see, to, to be determined. All right, and I think we're just about out of time. I feel like uh, Greg has a much better way of closing our, our typical weeks, but uh, appreciate your time, Joy, uh, coming on here as a, as a guest, and it was great to see you virtually at local U this week uh, hope to join you guys uh, in Denver in July um, and to those of you listening and watching uh, thanks so much for for your time if you're not yet a subscriber to the near media newsletter you can go to nearmedia.co slash subscribe um, and we will be introducing some paid options coming up in the next couple of weeks join our subscription our, our free service now to get substantial discounts uh, once that paid uh, paid offering comes out so Now's the time to go to nearmedia.co slash subscribe. Hope you all have a great weekend. Hope the weather is finally turning to spring wherever you are. Um, and we will talk to you next week on episode 60 of the Near Memo. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.